Welcome to this lecture entitled What Clinicians Can Learn from Forensic Scientists. I'm Roger Niebone, Professor of Surgical Education and Engagement Science at Imperial College London and Gresham College Visiting Professor of Medical Education. At Imperial I lead uh, a Centre for Engagement and Simulation Science and I also jointly lead Centre for Performance Science between Imperial and the Royal College of Music, led by me and my colleague Aaron Williamon. The Royal College of Music is very close to Imperial. We're next door neighbours at South Kensington. And this is a view over the Royal College of Music to the Royal Albert Hall, a well-known site of performance. And I've called this series of lectures over the last three years, Performing Medicine, Performing Surgery. And my idea here is to bring together elements of clinical practice, the science, the skills, and I think less often recognised the performance aspects of being a clinician. Because I think medicine takes place at an intersection between those three, and yet it's the performance that as patients particularly, we're most acutely aware of. Last year I published a, a book with Penguin called Expert, Understanding the Path to Mastery, in which I explore the idea of becoming expert as a, as a path that takes a long time uh, and can be thought of in different stages. And in that book, I, I point out uh, as a sort of framework, three stages that are well known to people from the, from the medieval guild model of apprenticeship, which goes back many centuries, where you start off as an apprentice, knowing little or nothing about the work that you're setting out to do. You're working in somebody else's environment and doing what they tell you. The next stage, you become independent, you go out into the, into the country, plying your craft or your trade, and then finally you become a, a master, passing on your knowledge and wisdom to people who come after you. And I think these are useful, these are useful stages, although of course the terminology is very different now. These nowadays are of course not gendered terms, but they, they do represent a series of stages. But, but looking at that process, from this point of view, misses a lot of what is really important because this is a descriptive account, looking at it from the outside. And what I really want to do in this book is to explore the internal processes that we all of us go through as we become more experts. So along the top of this diagram, which appears from time to time in the book, are those three stages. Um, but I've divided them up into, into subsections, if you like. So in that stage of being an apprentice, you have to spend a lot of a lot of, of time, years and years, what I've called doing time, where you're just you're just repeating again and again things that you may not want to do or don't particularly understand or certainly not enjoy, but you have to do them anyway. And at the time it can seem very tedious. But in in retrospect, you you find that that all those years spent doing apparently boring repetitive tasks of little value to you has done something very important. First of all, it's taught you, you've learned how to do the, the elements of, of your craft, but it's also given you a sense of the materials that you're working with, the tools, the instruments, and critically, the people that you're working with. The next stage, the journeyman stage, is, is a, a particularly interesting one because that involves a shift in focus from you and the skills that you've learned, the exams that you've passed, the things that you can show off, to recognising that that only makes sense in the context of whoever that work is for, and it might be 
your patient if you're a clinician as, as, as I am, it might be your audience if you're a performer in musical theatre, or it might be a customer, a client, somebody seeing your work in a gallery, all sorts of things. And so in a sense you're subordinating your, yourself to a bigger picture of who your work is for, but at the same time you are also developing your individuality, your style, your uniqueness, what makes you, you. And then finally, in that third stage, you're passing on your not only your knowledge and your skills, but also your your wisdom to people who are coming on behind you. And the reason I, I, I mention this now is that I think it sets the scene <clears throat> for for what I want to discuss and explore in this in this lecture, which is how people get to the point of of thinking in a different way from how they were taught and how they thought at the beginning of that pathway which I outline in this book. So to give you some examples, as I was a, um, a medical student, um, I started off by learning stuff that, uh, that was in a sense detached from individual people. I learned about anatomy like this from, from textbooks. I learned about the body, not a particular person's body, but the body. I learned about anatomy and names of structures. I studied um, I studied in, in the dissecting room. These are a couple of illustrations from a textbook uh, of dissections and you can see that, that human organs have been displayed and identified and I, I learnt where, where, the, where the kidney sits, where the liver is, again in a, in a detached way. Um, and so at that stage I was learning facts. When I, when I, when I progressed through my years at medical school I started to apply those when I encountered real life patients. I encountered those facts to people and I think at that stage I was I was trying to remember the facts that I've learned and I was trying to apply them to the people I met uh, and seeing those people as instances of the anatomical or um, knowledge or knowledge about disease categories applying what I had already learned to the people. My first uh, career uh, was as a, as a surgeon um, and in the 1980s I spent a, a number of years particularly in southern Africa elsewhere too uh, and here I am uh, on the right of the picture leading an operation in the middle of the night uh, as part of a team no longer just about me part of a team anaesthetist on the left in white my first assistant opposite me theatre sister in the background um, and I was learning all kinds of things there about about team working but I was also learning new skills and so this um, simulation, um, just to reassure you, this simulation of an operation shows shows the kind of um, the kind of practical dexterity-related skills that surgeons have to have to develop. Uh, in this kind of surgery, open surgery, I was learning to, to 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 work with the insides of people's bodies and to and to learn techniques of um, controlling bleeding and handling instruments and materials. Nowadays, of course, surgery is often very different. It's, for example, like this, like keyhole surgery or robot-assisted surgery, where the view is different, but again, there are skills that need to be learned. And so at this point, not only had I learned all those facts, I'd, I'd absorbed a number of, uh, a, a wide range of skills. And again, I was applying those to people. I then changed career and became a general practice, a general practitioner. And I've, I've been thinking looking back on that time, that, that there's something like this image, this well-known image 
of a duck or a rabbit. It could be a, you could see it as a duck facing to the left, you could see it as a rabbit facing to the right. It's up to you which, which way you see it, and you can switch. But I started to think that the world of medicine was a bit like that too, because the way I'd thought about the world of medicine when I was a medical student and a, a surgeon turned out to be rather different from the way I looked at clinical practice when I became a GP. Not at the start. At the start, I think I saw becoming a GP as a different form of a similar thing, of, of using facts and skills that I'd already developed and, and applying those to people, finding out how best they fitted. But as I became more and more experienced, I started to see things differently. I, I started to see my primary focus, not so much as the facts and the skills, but the individual people whom I encountered. And people would come to me in my consulting room um, and they would, uh, of course, frame usually their problem as a medical problem, but I would realise that very often there was more to it than that. There might be all sorts of other things going on in their lives, with their relationships, with the circumstances of their housing or their schooling or their work, all sorts of things that I needed to kind of make sense of. And I was a GP for getting on for 20 years and gradually I, I, I got a stronger and stronger sense that what I was doing was not applying uh, stuff that I'd already learnt um, directly to people, but I was trying to make sense of what each encounter needed. And some of it was, of course, those facts and those skills that I'd absorbed uh, and spent so long time learning, taking exams in, showing. But there were many other things I needed to, uh, to do as well. I needed to connect with other people who had knowledge that I didn't. And it might be professional colleagues if I needed to refer a patient for an expert opinion about a, a disease or perhaps have tests or scans. But there were many other people as well who were part of the picture. They might be uh, experts from, from the social services or from housing or from people who could help with relationship problems or patients who got into debt or all manner of things. Because as a, as a GP, as a family doctor, I wasn't, I wasn't working with patients who had already been filtered or screened or referred to me by other professional clinicians as had happened in the world of surgery, I was seeing people who, for whom I was their first port of call. And so I had to make sense and try and build a kind of narrative, really, a kind of story that made sense to each person I was with about what the problem actually was. And then with them, come up with a way of, of finding uh, an approach or a solution that got us both a bit further forward. Um, and, and, and it made me think that in terms of this journey, this, this pathway from knowing pretty much nothing to begin with to, to becoming more and more skilled and, and, and experienced, there is a crucially important um, characteristic, I think, of people who become more experienced, which is the ability to improvise. Now, I think improvisation has a, a bit of a bad name often because it, it sometimes sums up people who, who, who knock up a, a solution on the spur of the moment they haven't been able or haven't been bothered to take the time to do it properly. But I, I don't think it's that at all. I think improvising in its true sense is a very, very high, um, high, high, high skill. Um, and we see it, of course, particularly, I think, in, in jazz music. And so a group of musicians like this who are improvising are not knocking something up on the spur of the moment. They have all of them spent years, decades, doing time and going through all those stages I've talked about. They've spent, they've spent years and years learning to play their instruments, often from when they were very young. They've studied repertoire, they've listened to other people, they've, they've had an awful lot of experience in playing. And so when the time comes when they are improvising 
uh, as a group in front of an audience, they are able to to widen their attention uh, and move it not only from the uh, the skills and the, the practice, the the playing of their individual instruments, but they're able to listen and respond and listen and respond and and read the group of musicians that they're performing with and also the audience and how their work is um, is being received. And so I think there's something about uh, about people who have got to that stage of being able to uh, to integrate different aspects of their of their work in response to the needs of a particular situation and come up with a successful way forward, whether it's in music, whether it's in medicine, whether it's in really any branch of human activity. So at this point, um, I'm, I'm going to, to, to stop my formal presentation and I'm going to introduce a, a distinguished colleague of mine um, in order to continue the discussion. She's Professor of Crime and Forensic Sciences at University College London, where she established and directs the Centre for Forensic Sciences in the Faculty of Engineering Science. She's recently been appointed Vice Dean for Interdisciplinarity Entrepreneurship at UCL, and she's a member of the World Economic Forum Young Scientists community. So it's a great pleasure to welcome to this, uh, to this Gresham Lecture, Professor Ruth Morgan. Ruth, I, I, I've spent the last 10 minutes or so um, explaining from, from my point of view how I've, I've gone, al sort of gone along a pathway where I've changed the way I think about the nature of my work. Um, and I know you've had a pretty unorthodox uh, career pathway yourself. Could I ask you to start by, by just, just, just telling us about, about what that pathway has been? Of course, yes. Thank you so much for um, having me, um, and it's a real pleasure to be to be here tonight. Um, so yes, unorthodox. I started off my pathway in geography, which often surprises people, um, particularly um, given where I am now. So geography is all about understanding um, the physical environment and the societies that are interacting with them, the human actors that are in play and trying to get an understanding of what's going on and, um, and why, I guess. And I, so I, I really developed an interest in reconstructing past environments um, within that framework. And that led me to the point of being able to work with a really inspiring academic um, who became my PhD supervisor. And we were looking at how we could develop the tools that we've been using to reconstruct past environments over tens of thousands of years to uh, reconstructing crime events which were happening over often minutes, hours or days. And I think a real light bulb moment for me came when I was, uh, I was working in, in this area, um, looking into some cases um, that had been um, heard in, in, in various different courts in the UK. And it became clear that in a number of those cases there was some really critical science evidence that had been presented in the court um, as a way of reconstructing what had happened and giving an indication of um, who, who had been involved. And often that science evidence became quite critical to the ultimate verdict that was reached by a jury. And there were a number of incidences where that evidence wasn't actually based on robust uh, scientific 
evaluation. It was essentially based on, on intuition and assumptions. And that was quite a moment for me because I just thought, goodness, you know, that's, that's not okay. We've got um, a lot hanging on this science evidence. Um, so there was one particular case that we, we, we were able to work on and we were able to do a lot of experimental work around um, this particular form of evidence that had been critical and to test the assumptions that had been made about it. And what that uh, work did was um, gave us new insights into how those particular particles behaved, um, when they transferred, how they transferred, for example. And by doing that, we changed, um, well, we were able to build a much bigger picture, which changed the significance of that evidence in that particular case, um, quite complete, really. Um, so I started then looking at other instances where um, science was being used in the justice sort of system. And it just became apparent that it wasn't just in this environmental science field where there were gaps and where there was a, um, there were challenges uh, in terms of the basis for what we were understanding that evidence to mean. Um, it was prolific in, in almost every other field that was being used. And that is what really led me to set up the Centre for Forensic Sciences at UCL with a real mission for trying to get to grips with how could we think about um, this issue and explore these different evidence types and really build a much stronger, more robust framework for understanding what it means when we find a particular particle or um, piece of evidence in a particular place um, at a particular time. And so, so that's been a really exciting uh, part of my work. And I think I, it really resonates with me when you say um, that, that what you saw in your transition um, from surgeon to GP, that when you're working in that kind of space, you really have to find other people who have lots of really in-depth skills and knowledge about other, other, other areas, whether that's uh, DNA or blood um, or fibres or um, glass particles um, or, or digital evidence um, increasingly. And so my role has transitioned from having this real uh, in-depth um, focus on environmental materials and the indicators of, of environments and how we can use those to reconstruct crimes to how can we understand evidence and materials in a much broader piece, essentially across the whole of forensic science, which has meant I'm now working with really fascinating people from very, very different disciplines from biology and chemistry through to psychology and law, um, you know, even your geographer. So um, that's been quite a, a transition and, and sort of seeing how can we build bridges between different disciplines? How can we not just work within um, academic settings, but how can we be working with those key stakeholders, whether they're um, investigators, um, whether they're lawyers, whether they're um, crime scene managers. So getting this kind of um, more holistic approach, I guess, to creating the science and working together to focus on the problem that we're trying to, to fix. Um, so I guess that probably gives a bit of a feel. And then obviously thinking um, about how, how does science actually make things change? So if we've got a big problem like evidence going into court without a sufficient evidence base, how do we actually change things so that that doesn't happen 
going forward um, and how do we work with other people to um, create the environment where that can be that can be changed and just well, that make, that one makes of, an awful lot of sense to me Ruth thank you very much for sort of outlining that extraordinary um, sort of series of steps that you must have gone through I mean the, the one thing that struck me straight away is is that you you have made I think as as I have a, a number of sort of changes in your career haven't you and alongside those have gone a change in the way that you I, I think I've got this right that you think about your work but you couldn't have started off where you are now without having gone through what you did at the beginning and so all those years uh, you know studying geography and then doing a, uh, your PhD all, 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 all those things that, that's the kind of doing time stage mm. I suppose that I was talking mm -hmm. about and in my case it was learning facts as I mentioned but also you know spending hours struggling to learn to put up drips and take blood and do, do all sorts of things to people all that kind of stuff that then becomes second nature only becomes second nature because you spent a lot of time early on uh, sort of learning it um, and 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 so in a way you're you you all, all that presumably is still inside you somewhere in the same way as my equivalent is somewhere inside me although I'm not actually doing that kind of work myself at the moment now because it's changed mm. um, so 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 there are there are some people who do that but on the other hand there are other people who who do stay within a, a, a particular field and become extraordinarily expert in it in a way that to me is is very hard to imagine quite what that level of expertise is but it's a different kind of being expert i think mm. does that make sense to you it, re it really resonates i think um i was talking to one of my research students this week and just saying one of the the, the beginning of really cracking what, what you're working on is realizing what you don't know and then figuring out who you need to to work with to to plug that gap and i think that that's the that's the difference. I think you, if you if you go down the um, the route of becoming seriously expert and seriously specialist, um, that there is a fountain and wealth of um, expertise there. But there's also the need for for perhaps the more unorthodox um, type of expert who can who can make those bridges and bring connections between yeah, those experts. Yeah, I think it's the making bridges and connections that seems to me to be crucial. Um, and I suppose there's something about having enough of a knowledge of what the specialised people's world consists of to know how you can best connect mm. those worlds without without yourself being expert in those areas, but having an understanding. Um, and then I think that also comes into your idea around facts and people. So absolutely understanding the specialism sufficiently, if 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 not fully, but also understanding the environment that that person's working in and the drivers that they have and um, what what they can and can't do within that structure. And so it's yeah, facts and people. I think is is really critical there in terms of actually being able to make effective bridges. I guess. And I must say, when we first started having conversations about this a couple of years ago, this is all new to me because I, I mean, my 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 uh, impression of of the world of forensics, such as it was, came from television uh, series and and, uh, and 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 crime novels, like many people, I suppose. And so I I kind of I I thought of it as areas of highly specialised knowledge, and of course it 
it is that, isn't it? I mean, you know, the fingerprints people you mentioned being different from the uh, the DNA people or the uh, or, or the digital traces on phones or, or all those things. But what I hadn't realised was this, uh, how it needs to fit together to to build a story mm. of what happened or, or you know, a, 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 and, and that, of course, with as with all stories, there are there are many possible versions. And so there's there's this, I think, a fascinating uh, issue around uncertainty mm-hmm. and and sort of provisionality of 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 you, you know never being able completely to know what actually happened, but having to ha- having to, to to build a, st- a story that seems that that that, that seems to fit. And can you say a bit more about that? Because you, you, I mean, you're, you're working, as I understand it, not only with with the specialists in your laboratory world, but but also presumably lawyers and and publics and all kinds of different people who think very differently, perhaps about mm. about what goes on in laboratories. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, this is something that we've really um, delved into a little bit in the last couple of years because the whole pre- science is predicated on having a a hypothesis, um, looking at that, testing it, seeing where it doesn't work, seeing where it does work, and re-evaluating what you think is going on in the light of that additional data that you've got and, and going forward in that sort of way. And it's a sort of um, almost three steps forwards, two steps back kind of journey. And that kind of approach where you can re-evaluate your opinion about what something means as new data comes to light or new insights come in, is something that is a is fairly difficult to mesh with a justice system which requires um, beyond reasonable doubt. And I think the way that forensic science has been portrayed in the media is is both brilliant and and challenging because it's it's brilliant in terms of demonstrating the possibilities and the the way that science really can come to bear in, in real world situations and really help us get to the bottom of things and get justice for people, which is absolutely amazing. But it does also provide this rather um, black and white, um, clear, definitive narrative that, you know, we found this DNA, therefore this is absolutely certain. It is definitely this person who did it in this way. And and science isn't like that. Science can't actually give those definitive um, conclusions. Um, Even the things that we are most certain of it's possible that more data could come to light in the next five years, 50 years, 500 years that will change things and turn things on its head. And, and I think that's been something that's been quite a difficult one to, to navigate within forensic science, which is how do you hold out the, the, the strength and the possibility of science in that system that is asking for truth beyond reasonable doubt without losing the value that the science can bring. And, and, and that's been quite an interesting journey, uh, particularly when you start bringing people in. So um, I often say that um, you know, if we've got a, a white powder substance that can be analyzed in a laboratory and we can run that sample a hundred times and we can establish to what degree is the, the instrument erring, to what degree is the preparation not not quite so right, but we can repeat it sufficiently to be really really confident that if it you know if it's coming out and saying it's cocaine, it is cocaine. Um, that's very different to when you're looking at patterns or looking at um, um, other materials like like whether that's um, 
skeletal remains or whether that's um, uh, a, tr a trace on a weapon, you've actually got a person who's got to be able to look at the context. Where was that weapon? Was it by a radiator or was it by a window? Um, is, is the uh, biological material around the trigger or is it at the, um, at the, at the butt of the, of, the, of the cassette? Or There are lots of different things that a, a person can look at that weapon, say, and they're bringing an awful lot of experience to bear and saying, well, the fact that the material that we've been able to recover from that, that gun's on the trigger, it's far more likely scenario A. Whereas if it's um, somewhere else, it's, it's more likely scenario B. And that's this sort of tacit knowledge that I think you were referring to in terms of your, um, the, the, when you're a GP, you're, you're looking at the person and actually you're trying to figure out what, yeah. what is the question rather than just looking at the facts. And I exactly. I think that, that defining the question, I mean, I came to see this more and more as a GP that people would, would often come to me and they'd, they 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 they'd say I I don't know doctor I, I need some antibiotics or something like that you know they they would they would come with with what they thought was a a solution to a problem that they hadn't perhaps fully explored and some, very often it would turn out that that wasn't you know the, the question was why they wanted antibiotics not which antibiotics to give them and 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 in a sense they they would they 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 needed well the the first task was to work with people to find out what the issue was and and to help them bring it into view I, I, I came to feel because very often they would only see part of it uh, and they, they might sort of overlook the importance of the context they were in or whatever in other words things things that, that, that I as, a, as an outsider could could sometimes notice that they that had been there in plain sight but that it hadn't occurred to them that sort of thing it's a bit like the duck rabbit uh, mm -hmm. image I showed earlier I think where where you know there is so much in, in any context that you that could be seen, but we we tend only to see selected bits of it, um, and and you can change which bits become salient. I think, um, but that 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 making sense of a very complex uh, environment with many possible interpretations takes quite a lot of work. And I mean, we I, I, I used to get this a lot with with people when perhaps I'd refer them for uh, for tests and things and the tests test results would come back and they wouldn't be conclusive you know they wouldn't be uh, completely normal but they wouldn't be completely abnormal and so there was all this sort of question of in interpreting uh, what things meant and having to put together lots of different parts of a jigsaw to get it to make sense but then recognizing which I think goes back to what you were saying about science always being provisional and uncertain that you know, later down the line, more information might come into view that would change the, the picture. Um, and particularly with diseases and things that evolve and, uh, you know, all, 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 all those things where the, the situation is not fixed uh, and will always be the same at the moment you first encountered it. It, it is, of course, changing because everybody does. And, and sort of handling that sense that just because things turn out later to be different from how you saw it at the time, it doesn't mean that anybody got things wrong or made a mistake it's just that in the real world things are not fixed and i think we're seeing that all around us at the moment with the pandemic and the, and the science and the all, all that kind of all those discussions that are going on where people i think are very keen for science to give a definitive answer but i think science in my experience can't give a definitive answer very often and it sounds to me from what you're saying as if that plays out 
sort of pretty pretty clearly in your world of forensics i think so and i think it's very interesting that as you say with with what we've experienced over the last year um science has been looked to to provide definitive answers or to provide the tools that will fix a problem and that's obviously an, an aspect that science has which is brilliant and and absolutely can deliver but having a um, having a view on science that means, yeah, that it is a definitive thing rather than an evolving um, organic thing is quite dichotomous, I think, for for a lot of um, a lot of different parts of society. And I, and actually, I think probably the key to unlocking a lot of this is being able to celebrate that provisionality of science and the, and, and its ability to evolve as new insights come to light and to give nuance and insight um, and also hold together quite maybe lots of different things that don't possibly make sense right now um, that give us a uh, give us a, a, a good an indication as perhaps is possible um, but it does come down to this aspect of it's not just facts it's facts and people and it's not just people it's it's different types of experts and it's also different types of um society parts of society so you know as a policymaker you're looking for science to give you one set of um insights as a um as a healthcare professional you're looking for it for in a different way in the justice system you're looking for a different type of um answer if, if you like and it's it's holding all that together in a way that doesn't reduce science to being sort of almost pushed into a corner to, to offer something that it shouldn't if that makes yeah, sense. No, no. giving a black and white answer when actually that's not really what what's possible particularly given the complexity of the situation whether that's primary construction or a um, pandemic or um, an individual patient that looking for antibiotics well that makes a lot of sense to, to me and I, I, I mean I, I start to think more and more that that there's something um something crucial about being able to li listen and and look and attend to your audience whether that's a patient or whether it's a colleague or whether it's all sorts of things and and sort of recognizing how your framing of something lands and whether it makes sense and and that involves being able to have different ways of communicating because communicating with with in my case with colleagues inside medicine happened in one way with colleagues outside medicine with another with patients or with grown-ups and children you know all, all, all those things require sort of different registers mm. and, and different I suppose different awarenesses of how of how a, a, a framing of the situation perhaps makes sense to other mm. people whether it lands with them whether whether they they sort of accept it or, or find it useful um, and I suppose so. It's, it's it's not just a question of transmission; it's a question of receiving, isn't it? Of of recognizing and making sense of what comes back to you, because sometimes you have to do quite a lot of adjusting. I think you have to maybe change the words that you use or the or the way that you express things if you're trying to connect with other people's ways of seeing that situation. And I imagine that the ways of a of a uh, a, a jury or a uh, a, a barrister or uh, an expert in um, in explosive traces would probably be pretty different. And mm. you're, it sounds to me as if you're, you're sort of holding the ring in the middle. 
trying to to straddle and yeah be at that intersection and I think there's something about um what you just described in terms of having to um convey something to different audiences different ways there's something there about the fact that there's a lot of noise often in these complex scenarios and I guess one of the things there is 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 about uh, is, is having a good judgment as to which bits of the noise to cut out and you know, what to ignore and, and what to go for. Um, you know, there's no point probably, you know, explaining the ins and outs of how that DNA sample was produced and how the analysis was done and how um, five different contributors were distinguished in that mixed sample to a, to a, to a jury. They, you need to, you, you've got all of that information, but that needs to be then presented to a jury in a way that is helpful and meaningful to the question that they have in front of them. So it's not necessarily about the mechanics of the production of that knowledge. It's more about um, how did we arrive at that opinion? What what was the context? How, how was that decision reached? What is the threshold of uncertainty? To what degree is that uncertainty um, a challenge? Um, what other bits of information do we have that inform that opinion? Because um, it's not just the um, the ones and zeros in front of us. It's you know there's, there's lots of other contextual things like um, you know, that the sample was degraded or the um, um, there's a, a recent piece of work has come out showing the, the challenges of discriminating between multiple contributors to a sample or whatever it might be. But in a, in a court situation, you are there to assist the court and. Part of, I think, expertise in that situation is deciding what not to say and what to say, as well as how to say it. And that, I guess that resonates particularly with a, a patient-doctor situation where um, the ins and outs of, of, of that particular disease maybe isn't what a patient needs to hear right now if they've got to decide whether to take Medi- medical route A or medical route B. Yeah, yeah. no, I think it's exactly that. And, and I think one of the, one of the reasons... Um, that I've found our, our conversations over the years to be so interesting, so illuminating, really, is that, that for, I think it wasn't until fairly recently that it occurred to me that there were other areas of expert practice completely unrelated to medicine where similar things were, were going on. And if I had thought about that, I wouldn't have picked out forensic science as one of them because I think I had, you know, as I said, that oversimplified view from from novels and television, um, that it was that it was very, you, you know, did this person do it or not? If their DNA was on the handle, they did. And if it wasn't, they didn't kind of thing. And hearing from you that there is that, uh, you know, all, all the complexities that you've been talking about has made me think more and more about how in any professional area we can perhaps connect with people in other professional areas where the the domain of professional practice is completely different, but the processes have similarities. Mm. Um, and and this idea of, of of an expert generalist, I think, is a very interesting one of somebody who 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 has gone through those stages of, of, of learning a, a, a trade or craft or a field or something, but who then branches out and develops these these different characteristics that you've just been talking about, which lead to interpretation and making sensible choices and um, and and being open to review all the, all those things. And I wondered what your thoughts were about um, 
about how to how to how to really bring insights from other professional domains into play I, th I think it's often a very uncomfortable place to be <laughs> I think um, there's I think particularly in the science world there's a there's a very clear pathway um, how do, how you become um, a, a senior and how do you become a well well respected and, and how do you get to the top of the field there's a very very clear pathway of how to do that um, and it involves various different things you know um, public publications um, research that, and publications in the right place um, working with the right people um, getting that patent or, or whatever it might be and I think as an expert generalist that you don't fit you don't fit very neatly um, anywhere and I think the very very good at getting deep knowledge in our, in in our in our disciplines, creating channels and pathways where people can span those and gain in gain, gain insights so that they are actually able to to listen and um, learn is is quite quite challenging. Um, I don't think necessarily the infrastructures are always always there and always really promoting that and I think there's also something about often as scientists because I think we have spent all that time getting that skill you know doing that those hours and hours and hours of, of practice that it can be incredibly scary to admit the things that there are things that you don't know and that there are things that you can't do and that's also reinforced I think by uh, the infrastructures that we have where as scientists you're um, if you, well, if you're worth your salt, you, you have answers and you have um, insights. And actually, as an expert generalist, um, I find myself basically every day confronted with things that I don't know, um, things that I can't quite figure out, things that don't make sense. And that either gives you lots of energy because it's exciting to go and discover um, what those gaps might be and who might be able to um, work with you to to find solutions or it's incredibly terrifying because that's that, that's not as scientists that's not what we're supposed to do so um i think that there's two aspects there's the personal aspect which is um being willing to sit with unknowns um some of which you might never know um and then there's also the the, the structures that we sit within and to what degree is is the value of that kind of individual who can span those different disciplines and build bridges and um, foster a community that transcends our traditional silos, if you like. Um, what, what does that bring? And, and what's I think exciting is what we're seeing is as we do face big challenges, whether that's the you know, environment and climate or whether it's a global pandemic or whether it's um, um, challenges in the justice system or, or challenges in um, education, what we're beginning to see is that there is a realisation that no single discipline is going to be able to fix it. Single disciplines will be able to contribute aspects to it, um, whether that's you know, in education, making sure that everybody's able to code uh, you know, up, up in, into the, you know, by the time they're 11 or, or whatever that it might be. Um, there are lots of building blocks that each discipline can contribute 
But what I think we're beginning to see is that this is you know, a lot of these challenges are bigger than any one field and we need to work together to, to fix them. And that's going to require grassroots and it's also going to require governments. And, and it's both of those sort of top down, bottom up approaches. And to, to do that, we need the people who can make the connections and bring people together and create those dialogues and conversations that are probably not just one off things. They're, they're, they're ongoing. They're, um, they're infusing society so that we're able to sit better with uncertainty, but also this idea that we need to have diverse teams that are bringing different lenses to things, that see things differently, that have different tools to, to, to bring to the party, if, if, if you like. And um, that gets me excited because I can see that actually that there's a future for tackling these complex challenges that, that we're facing that involves people working together. Um, Yes, and I, I suppose this, I know you've been working with the um, with the World Economic Forum group of of of, uh, of of young scientists, and you've you've been you've been thinking more widely than your than your discipline of of forensic science or crime science, and and I suppose it's another instance, isn't it, of 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 finding points of connection with people who are who are grappling with with uh, with parallel issues, but in very different fields. Um, and it made me think of a, of a conversation that that we had that you and I had with a couple of colleagues a year or two ago. Uh, one of whom was a um, was Irma Hermans, who's the technical art historian at the Rijksmuseum in um, in Holland, in Amsterdam. And she was talking about her work in rather similar terms to I think how you talked about yours, because as an art historian who had who had trained as a, a, a historian, of course, in, 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 in knowing about um, a, a, a broad range of, of, um, of, of eras and, and, and approaches to art, but also as, a, as, a, as an artist herself. But working in her job with people who had very high degrees of narrowly specialised knowledge, and she was giving an example of the restoration of, um, of, the, of the Night Watch, Rembrandt. Um, famous painting which is going on at the moment and saying that she was having to bring together these these very specialized um, forms of of <clears throat> of information from people who were analyzing paint samples or they were doing um, 3d imaging of of the layers of the paint or they were they were they'd, rather I it made me think of your work with the people who specialize in DNA analysis or fingerprints or uh, explosive residues or whatever but she was having to bring all that together in and make sense of it mm -hmm. and make sense of those not only those clearly defined factual insights but those areas where the science wasn't certain where there was uncertainty and provisionality to try and make sense of how all that information played into how she knew Rembrandt was working at the time with the other artists you, you, you know the sort of social as well as the uh, artistic side of it in conjunction with the scientific side and it, it made me think that that maybe there are lots of other instances where people are are bringing together or weaving together um, different perspectives yeah. as expert generalists and that that itself is something that, that that we can learn from in thinking how they develop those skills of, of, of doing that weaving and how they how they manage and negotiate those 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 challenges that you've been talking about yeah. about trying to make sense of uncertain evidence in an uncertain world where all we can know for certain is that things will look different in a few years time.
And I think weaving is a really powerful image for that because it's it's not with a woven piece of fabric you don't you can see that there are individual strands but ultimately it's it's the connectivity of multiple strands that creates a fabric and, and actually what you're looking at is the fabric not the, the strands and I guess that's something that I've seen a lot of is you know if you um you know, encounter somebody who's got a specific expertise in say um uh, uh, imaging say often they may not know that actually exactly the challenge that we've got in forensic science or surgery or, or the meds, medical world is that we can't image something and actually what they their skill they've got if we could transpose it in would open up this whole other world of possibility but ha- how does that happen unless you've got this fabric which is that interconnection that woven it's a relational thing isn't it it's it's a something that's ongoing it's it's something that potentially doesn't produce a nice neat outcome after the first meeting but in three years time when that problem arises you're like oh that's exactly the person and then and, and, and because you've been having that ongoing connection you know what they're doing where they're at and so it's that sort of it's the relational side of science as well as the the, the individual yeah um, it's exactly that I, I quite agree and, and I mean, it makes me think in, in the sort of just as we're getting towards the end of our conversation, really, that I, I started off by, by saying that this is um, my series of lectures has been about performing medicine, performing surgery, and that in a way what we're talking about here is is performing, um, because we're, we're talking about that element of performing that involves awareness of other people uh, and recognising whether the interpretation, whether it's an interpretation of a, of, a, of a piece of music or something artistic, or whether it's an interpretation of a clinical problem or interpretation of sounds or whatever, whether that is landing in the way that it needs to with whoever it is that we are engaging with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that might be an individual patient in a consulting room, or it might be a jury, or it might be an audience of uh, 3,000 people in the festival, or whatever it is. It, it, it is. it is another instance of performing. Um, but I thought that, you know, when I was a medical student and then even later on, if if somebody had suggested to me that, that, that my work was about performing, I think I'd have felt a bit sort of odd about that because I, at the time, thought of really medical work as the application of scientific knowledge and skills for the uh, in the service of a particular person at a particular time. And of course, it is that. Mm-hmm. But I think it is also this 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 issue of performing in in that wider sense and to me I don't think even now in the world of medicine and and I I guess probably in other forms of of other areas of science that performing aspect is is sort of often overlooked Uh, and the skills that people need to develop and the the ways of thinking that would really help them in performing I think somehow get sidelined or, or, or not even addressed at all. Um, at least that's my sense in, in, the, in the world of medicine and with many of my scientific colleagues at Imperial. And I wondered from your perspective uh, at University College London and particularly your new role in interdisciplinarity and entrepreneurship, whether you saw that as being an issue that goes more widely than, than in your own department that you've set up in, in forensics and whether you see there there is... Uh, there are ideas to be exchanged more widely. Absolutely. I think I had 
another light bulb moment um, a couple of years ago with the realization that if you want to solve big problems, really good science is just the first step. You've got to have the good science, absolutely. But it's never going to actually have traction in the real world if there isn't um, a channel for that. And, um, and part of that channel is the performance, if you like, of that science. It's figuring out how to reach the key people in a way that means something to them and that speaks to their um, their needs and their what, what's driving them and what's driving their institutions. And exactly as you said, I think as scientists, the things that we are um, valued for are often the, 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 the initial skill set and the deep expertise. And if you can communicate your science to the, to the rest of the field, then that's really great. Um, but don't worry too much about, you know, any, any further. And actually, there's so much nuance in how we communicate and how we, um, how we present, which, as you say, what some of the conversations we've had over the last couple of years, it's, it's absolutely fascinating if you think about it, a, a, a virtuoso pianist, that it's, it's not just about the music that they're producing, it's about the the movements and the the interaction with 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 the space that they're in, like it, it's a whole it's a whole uh, entity. And as I think, as scientists, that's something that we really need to be working at um, and valuing a lot more. And so, yes, one of the things I'm seeing more is that actually, um, if we're challenged to think a little bit outside of our comfort zone, if we're challenged to um, interact with people who maybe haven't got the same background as us so out you know, outside of our initial field but also outside of academic science um the insights that come and the ways that we can see our findings in the lab landing in the real world suddenly becomes quite transformed it's i often try and make sure that um my research students all have a chance to present their work outside of the, the academic world um, whether that's in the school or um um, at, at sort of meetings that are designed for um, creative thinking or, or innovation. And it's amazing that the, the, the difference when they've had the opportunity to really think, okay, if, I want, if I've got 10 minutes to explain what I'm doing and why it matters to an audience that know nothing about the sort of background to my work, they then are able to, you know, they, they, they do that. The feedback that they get is that they're so much more encouraged, I think, often they come back going, People thought that was amazing. They could see why it matters and they can see how this might have traction in the real world in a way that we don't always get within our academic settings where it's, well, what, you know, how many samples did you have and, and did you think about doubling it? And uh, which are all brilliant questions and, and make the science better. But in terms of going forward and making sure that the research questions that we're asking are the ones that are going to land and have an impact, that's where I think... Um, performance is an integral part to making that happen and happen effectively and I think it's something that going forward there's there's a growing realization that this is absolutely key to getting the science out where it needs to be
Yeah, well, I completely agree about that. And I think that, that there is, a, as we've seen over the last year with the pandemic and all that goes with it, there's a, a sort of uh, a, a very strong wish and an understandable wish for clarity and, and yes, no answers and, and being sure that, you know, what we're doing now is the right thing. And so that idea that there are many different ways of looking at a situation and there is provisionality and uncertainty is uncomfortable with people. But it is, uh, it is a, a crucial aspect of scientific work. And I think we really do need to try and uh, and try and get as many people as possible to understand that science is very much a question of interpreting and that there's always more than one story that you could tell. Um, and I, think, I mean, bringing that back to my experience as a, as a GP, as I became more experienced and I think became more confident in, uh, in being happy to say when I didn't know things uh, and happy to, to make the focal point a testing out of whether my way of uh, seeing the situation aligned with my patient's way of seeing the situation to see it much more as a partnership, um, which I think many people do instinctively uh, in any case, but they, they sometimes don't see it quite in those terms. And to me, one of the fascinating things that's come out of this conversation is that is that there are many, many um, areas of, of, of practice in, in all kinds of fields where that's going on. Mm. And it seems to me that we've got an opportunity here to to connect more uh, between between clinicians and forensic scientists, between these people and those people, and to see that the that those characteristics of becoming an expert generalist generalist of of making sense of the of of of, of what's in the noise, of reading other people, of being able to perform and convey and and listen and all, all those things that we've just been talking about, they're they they're they're, they're just as important but in a different way as the aspects of science we more usually think of, of what happens at laboratory benches what happens in operating theatres and what happens in the closed world of the lab so Ruth Morgan we, we, we'll have to leave it there because our time is finished but thank you so much for taking part in this Gresham lecture and for such a fascinating conversation thank you it's, yeah it's Real, really exciting to explore all these different ideas and um, I hope the rest of the series goes really well. Thank you.